Hey, good morning. Welcome to Midtown. Uh, my name is Matt Avery. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, we're beginning our celebration of the season of Advent. If you're not familiar with the season of Advent, it is a season that the, the Christian church has celebrated uh, for a long, long time, uh, where we, we are saying that we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're, we're waiting uh, symbolically for Jesus to come for the first time as we celebrate the coming of his birth every year. Uh, but we, as Christians, live in a season of waiting, where we are waiting for Jesus to come back the second time, where he is going to come and he is going to make everything right, and all of the promises that he has made to us uh, will be fulfilled. And he will take us uh, from this place and, and bring us to our homes. And one of the things that I love about the Advent season is uh, it, it's very easy maybe to, to believe that uh, Christianity sort of lives in this pie in the sky land where it's divorced from reality, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And Advent is a great reminder of that because Jesus comes to us uh, and invites us to wait in our, our longing and our groaning and the suffering that we're experiencing now. And he tells us it is hard now, uh, but it's not always going to be this way. And so uh, before we read the passage, our, our series now is uh, the women of Advent. These are the women that appear in Jesus's genealogy, which was very strange for women to appear in any genealogy. And it's, these women who do appear in Jesus's line are uh, very interesting indeed. And so each week we're going to look at the, the life of one of those women. And so this week we're looking at Tamar. And uh, if you have not ever read this passage, it is a, a difficult passage, and there are some ugly, ugly things in this passage. And so two things I want to say before Jonathan Rogers, um, one of our elders, comes up and reads the passage for us, is this. Um, this passage is speaking to all of us in two different camps. Um, if you are in this place, and you are far from the Lord, or you feel far from the Lord, and you are very aware of your need, you're very aware of your desperate state, and uh, your sin, and your shame, and that's something that's very glaringly obvious to you, then uh, the Lord is speaking to you in this passage. And he's saying, uh, get over yourself. Because there is nothing that you could say or do or think that would surprise him or come outside of the bounds of what he is ready to handle. Okay? Uh, and then some of us in the room are coming from a place of self-righteousness where we feel like we're pretty good we kind of have everything figured out, and, and it's the people out there. Uh, when, when I sin, it's not that big a deal. When someone else sins, it is a big deal. Um, and he's got something to say to us, too. And so uh, I want Jonathan Rogers to come up. And as he's coming up, I want to thank Jonathan publicly for praying for my son this week. Uh, if, if Voldemort ever comes back, I think our 17-month-old field is uh, the chosen one to fight him because he sprayed himself in the face with bear spray. Uh, this weekend, and he is the boy who lived, and he is actually fine. So thank you for your prayers. They are effective. Um, so come up and read the passage for us. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. 
and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, uh, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jonathan. So if you weren't awake before, now you are. I'm going to pray for us, and we're just going to jump right in. Father, we come to you today, all of us, every single one of us, equally helpless and in desperate need of you. Uh, whether we know it or not. And Lord, you are good and you are merciful and you extend an invitation of grace and mercy and love to every single one of us who is, who is hearing your word this morning. And Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes. Some of us, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes for our need of you. Um, for those of us maybe who have known you for a long time, open our eyes afresh to see our need of you today. Lord, for those who feel far from you, who are far from you, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes to your mercy. And Lord, we ask that you would keep your promise, that you, you say that you will, your word will never return void. It will always fulfill the purpose for which you send it, and that you will not leave us unchanged. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, keep your word, and I thank you for keeping your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. We are, we're going to walk through this passage, and this, chap, this passage has three, what I'll call chapters in the story, and that's how we're going to mark our, our time through the passage. So first, we start with the situation. What's going on? Uh, this is the setup, the situation, and we're going to move into the decision. 
And we're going to move from the decision to the reveal. So situation here, just to go back a little bit before our, our passage begins, Judah is one of the 12 sons of Israel. He is, uh, it is for him that one of the 12 tribes of Israel, of God's people, is named. Um, but the chapter right before this, he sells one of his brothers into slavery, into foreign slavery. He's as good as dead. And so uh, Judah has shown himself to be someone who is a member of the people of God in name and birth only. Uh, He is very far from the Lord in heart. Uh, Because right before our passage begins, uh, we see him leaving his brothers, leaving his people, and going down to take a Canaanite woman for himself to marry, which uh, for the people of God at that time was a major no-go. In fact, it was stated clearly two different times in Scripture before this to his ancestors. Whatever you do, you do not take a Canaanite to be your wife. So we see here Judah is totally disregarded the the law of the Lord, disregarded what it means to be uh, a son of God. And so now he is living with this uh, Canaanite wife. He has three children by her, three sons. The oldest is Ur, and then he has Onan, and then he has Shelah. And so he takes another Canaanite woman, and this is where Tamar enters the picture. Tamar is a Canaanite woman that he takes for his oldest son, Ur, to be his wife. We don't know what the the issue was with Ur, but we just know that he was so wicked that God couldn't even stomach him living out a natural life, and he killed him. And so you can imagine from Tamar's perspective to be married to a man who is that wicked uh, was probably a very uh, painful experience. And so what happened in those days, there was this practice called leveret marriage, where if uh, a, brother's, a brother dies and does not have any sons, then it is the duty of the next brother to marry the deceased brother's wife and try to produce a son through that wife, and that son would actually be considered the dead brother's son. Okay, and there's three main reasons why many cultures in this time and area practice this leveret marriage. One was very practical just to immediately take care of this woman who was a widow and now had nobody to take care of her, no resources of her own. And so it's that she would be absorbed into the house of the next brother and be cared for. The second reason uh, was to, to make sure that all the property stayed in this line and, and everything was straight there. And the third reason had to do with what These people were trying to sort out when it came to eternal life, and they were thinking about uh, the fact that it was very important to them that this person's name and lineage lived on forever. And so so that's this practice. And so as Judah, as the father-in-law, it was his absolute duty to make sure that this marriage happened. So something else you have to know for the story to make sense is another custom of that time was that the oldest son of a family received a double share of the inheritance. Okay. So whatever inheritance is going out to all the kids, the oldest son got twice as much. So what happened when Ur died and Judah said, okay, Onan, you have to marry this woman and produce a son for your dead brother. Onan said, I'm not going to do that because I want the double inheritance for myself. And so he would go in and have no problem meeting with Tamar, but he made sure that she was not gonna get pregnant by him. And you know what? The Lord saw that and said, that is wicked. And what you're doing is wicked, and I don't wanna see you live the rest of your natural life, and you're gone too. So now, think about from Tamar's perspective, you have this woman who uh, knows of the people of God, 
knows that they are different, that they are set apart, and she is now in the people of God, and she now has two dead, wicked husbands, and now has this father-in-law who is saying the right things, but he is deceiving her. And he's saying to her, um, apparently the third brother was not yet old enough to be at an age where he could marry. And so the father-in-law is like, great, this buys me some time. And he says, hey, you know what? Of course we're gonna, we're gonna let you marry Shella when it's time for him to be married. Um, but it's just not time yet. So if you'll just go back to your father's house and stay in your mourning clothes and live in this state of mourning, then when it's time, we'll come get you and, and everything will be, we'll, we'll take care of it, make everything square. And so he's counting on two things. Uh, the first is time, that maybe over the course of time, some intervening circumstances will happen and this moment will never have to come because from his perspective, uh, he's not seeing the wickedness of his sons He's only seeing the fact that his two sons that married this woman are dead, and so she must be cursed, he thinks. So he thinks that the problem is with her, and now he's worried about his own line because he only has three sons. There's just one left. And so he's hoping that time will take care of this issue, but probably more than that, he's hoping that her relative position of extreme weakness and powerlessness will also take care of the issue. That this is a woman, and she's a foreign woman, and so who, who is going to come on her behalf and really fight this case for her? Probably nobody. So we're just going to sort of let this slide and just kind of like let this thing get washed over over the years, and hopefully everybody will just forget about it. So uh, as time marches on, she and people around her, her friends, her family have dealings uh, and are, have opportunities to see Judah and their youngest son, Shella, and the reports are coming back like, hey, He's definitely marrying age now, and she hasn't heard anything from Judah. So she has this moment. I think about, this is a very small example of this from my life, but um, when I was in middle school, I was calling some guys during the summertime to hang out. I wanted to hang out with these guys and see what they were doing, and I called two or three different guys and was like, yeah, what are y'all doing today? Like, yeah, not doing anything. I think I'm just going to stay at home. Like, okay, cool. And my best friend in the whole world lived about three houses down and I could see his driveway from my upstairs like computer room in our house. And so I go upstairs a couple hours later, and I look, and all the guys that said they weren't doing anything and staying home were in my friend's driveway, and nobody had called me. And I felt like a huge loser. But it was just that moment where you know, your stomach just drops. And so multiply that times 1,000 million, and that's this moment for Tamar of like, oh, I've been sitting here like a fool and there's no one who's coming for me. Like no one's looking out for me. Nobody cares about me. No one's keeping the law. I'm just stuck. So, Tamar's experience with the people of God. Think about that. The people of God who are supposed to be a blessing are an absolute curse on this woman's life. The people who are supposed to show the world, including her, who God was, what he was like, were showing her something very different. Can we relate to that? Two wicked brothers for husbands, a wicked father-in-law, used, deceived, blamed for the death of those wicked men, believed to be cursed by some, 
So let's stop and ask this question. Did God care about Tamar? It's kind of a tough one. Let me tell you a couple things about God. What do we see God doing here? He is crushing wickedness. He is actually in the process of caring for this foreign widow. But all throughout the Old Testament, all all it takes is a cursory reading of the Old Testament to see that God identifies himself over and over and over again with the helpless. More specifically, the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, which is the foreigner who is living among the people of God. Deuteronomy 10.18 says this, God executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God even names himself and allows himself to be named in Psalm 68.5 as the protector of widows. Um, All throughout the the prophets, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, the prophets come and bring charges against the people of God. And, and all throughout the prophetic books, one of the primary charges that they bring against God's people uh, is, is this is an example from Ezekiel 22.7, that widows are even wronged in your borders. Like how disgusting is that, says God. I am the protector of widows, and my people are taking advantage of widows because they don't have standing. That is disgusting, So God does care very much for Tamar. But her life experience would not, it would not be easy for her to believe that that was true. So this is an important place for us to pause and and bring all of this crashing into your reality, which is I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know where you found yourself your entire life. But you may be in a place where the people of God have really wronged you maybe even in God's name, or you may just be in a place where it just feels like from your life circumstances, nobody loves you. So how in the world can I believe that God loves me? And I would say this, you cannot mix those two things. You cannot believe for one second because of of these life circumstances and what has been done by the people of God, uh, that that's who God is, because he is very clear but that is not who he is. So if you are in that position today, he invites you to hold on because you will see his salvation if you call upon him. Okay, so this is the setup. This is the situation. And now we're, we're moving on to um, the move, the move that Tamar makes. So it says that in the normal course of time, Judah's wife dies. She just dies of natural causes. And uh, there was a set period of mourning uh, in their culture. And so that period of mourning ends at a very opportune time for Judah because it ended around the time of the annual sheep shearing, which we all know about the annual sheep shearing. Uh, We don't. But here's what the annual sheep shearing was essentially for us. Translated, it's like the annual sales conference in Vegas that you go to without your spouse. It is the place where all of your wildest dreams come true and what happens there stays there. That's the sheep shearing. I know. You wouldn't expect that to happen in a sheep shearing. But that's, seriously, people, 
people get drunk, they do crazy things. That's, that's this big celebration festival. And so um, the same guy that we see Judah hanging out with when he marries the Canaanite woman and runs away from his family, he's back with that hood rat friend and they're going up to the sheep shearing together, <laughs> up to no good. So they go up and uh, Tamar knows that this is happening and she decides it's time for some vigilante justice. I'm tired of being made a fool of. I'm tired of nobody looking out for me. It's time for me to start looking out for myself. So she devises a plan where she takes off her mourning clothes and puts on her prostitute clothes. And she puts a veil over her face. And she goes and stands by the roadside and waits for her father-in-law. Now think about this. If she thinks that this plan is going to work, what kind of man must Judah have been? For her to think that there is an incredible chance a high likelihood that if I dress as a prostitute, that he is going to proposition me. So that's a little window into the character of Judah. And so sure enough, the plan works. And she's waiting by the road that he has to take to get up to the sheep shearing because it's in another town. And he says, hey, let me sleep with you. And she says, okay, what are you going to give me? And he says, how about a young goat? She's like, I don't see any goats. And he's like, okay, well, I'll give you a goat later. Well, what are you going to give me to make sure that you're going to come through? And what he gives her is what she asked for is essentially like two really good forms of ID. <laughs> because the cord and the signet was like basically one thing. It's the signet that you would wear around your neck, and it was like your signature. And everybody had a different signature. And then the staff... It wasn't just like we think about like a walking stick, just a big brown stick. The staff was basically like a sleeve tat. It was like this very unique, like, <laughs> you know, ornate, like designs all over the staff. So that was also very unique. And people would be able to tell the difference between staffs. Like whose staff is this? Oh, that's clearly Judah's because of, you know, whatever is on there. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of something funny. It didn't happen. Um, <laughs> And so she takes his staff and his cord and signet, and they sleep together, and she becomes pregnant. And Judah leaves, and he goes back to his town. And then some time passes, and he sends the payment. He doesn't go himself, because he wants to protect his reputation. So he sends his hood rat friend to go and take the young goat to the cult prostitute, wherever she was. And so now we have this picture of this his buddy walking through town, like, hey, I got a baby goat for a prostitute. Where's the, where's the cold prostitute? Everybody's like, there's no cold prostitute here. He's like, no, no, there, we have to pay her. No, there's not a cold prostitute here. Thoroughly confused, goes back to Judah. And Judah says, you know what? Let's just, let's just let it lie. Because after this cursory search, things are going to get a lot more embarrassing. Because now I'm going to have to be like going door to door like, is there a prostitute? I slept with a prostitute, and I left my important things, my driver's license and my wallet are with her. Could you find her for me? And he's like, yeah, we're just going to skip that and hope that she doesn't run up a lot of charges on my credit card. So that's where we are. And um, basically, you have Judah living this double life. I heard uh, a very interesting, poignant double life story just this morning. I was at a coffee shop and ran into a friend. And I said, how was Thanksgiving? And he said, it was great. I got to meet my brother's secret son. I'm like, what did you say? He said, yeah, my brother had a two-year-old 
that none of us knew about until Thanksgiving. I said, man, can you please enlighten me and tell me how that happened? And he said, my family is so ultra conservative that he was terrified. And it took him this long to tell anyone about it. And he said, the crazy thing was we did the math and the little boy was born on a Sunday. And that very day he was in the delivery room, the brother, and watched the son be born and made sure everything was okay. And that night he went to a family dinner. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, if that were me, no matter how scared I was, I think I would do one or the other, but not both. Like, it would not be possible for me to have both of those experiences and not say anything. But um, that's a pretty extreme account of a secret life. But what about all the other kinds of secret lives that we can live? You know, let's just stick with secret sexual lives, because that's what we're talking about today. What about pornography? What about those actual work conferences in Vegas where your spouse is not there? What about even just having like church friends and going out friends and hoping a lot of times that there aren't paths that are intersecting because that's going to get really embarrassing for me. And you know, a lot of us are in a place and it's easy to get there where we care about more more about our image and who we appear to be than our holiness and who we actually are. It's easy to get to a place where I care more about my reputation than about my own soul. And whose opinion of me I value is revealed, and a lot of times for me in a really embarrassing way, when I look at how I live. And a lot of times... I'm more worried about other people thinking something of me than I am about who I really am. So that's the move that Tamar made, and now we get to the reveal. Everybody loves a good reveal. This is a great one. So three months pass, and I want you to put yourself in Tamar's shoes here. This woman is pretending to be in mourning. Uh, This time of pregnancy, this time of new life in her, should be a time of joy and expectation. Instead, it's probably a time of shame for her sin, for her situation, a time of mourning, real mourning, not for her wicked husbands, but for herself. Very aware that there's not a husband there, there's not a provider there to be taking care of her in this time. And on top of that, just this fear, this growing fear of any day now, someone is going to see that I'm pregnant and they are going to drag me out into the street for a little community justice where I will be killed. And so that day comes... And she is dragged out into the street for a little community justice. And Judah is told, hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has committed immorality. What should we do? And he says, well, my recommendation is to burn her. Like, she was supposed to die for her sin. That was the law. But to burn her was like an extreme 
version of this crime, which she did not fit into that category. So he wanted to execute justice to the full measure of the law and then some. Could we sneak a little more justice in there? And everybody watching is like, well, of course. Look at what she's done to him. You know, let's, let's just think about it. She's deceived him. She's lied. She's broken God's law. She's been sexually immoral. She's brought shame on his house. And this is probably evidence of the truth that she's probably cursed. Cursed? The Bible has something interesting to say about curse. God says, cursed is he who does injustice to the widow. So if we could see the full picture, we would see that Judah is cursed. Judah has lied. Judah has deceived. Judah has lived a whole life of sexual immorality. Judah has lived a whole life of violating God's covenant and bringing shame on his house. He sold his own brother into slavery. How hideous is that, that he is in equally or worse position of her, and he wants to burn her to death for what she's done. How blind he is. How, how blind he is to his own sin. A, a refusal to see this. So, Tamar is being brought out and she has the cord and signet. So hold on, let me get a couple things before we go. And she gets the cord and the signet and the staff. And she brings it with her and she says to the people bringing her out, would you please see that these get to my father-in-law? And then when we're out in front of all these witnesses, she says, hey, will you do me a favor? Because the man who impregnated me, these are his. Will you tell everyone whose these belong to? And you just see this man, like powerful, poignant picture of this woman who is at the same time so pitiful because she's standing there alone with nobody in the world giving a rip about her, three months pregnant. But she's also so powerful in this place where she is, she is standing up to this injustice. And Judah has this moment where God brings him to repentance on the spot. And this is, this is a turning point in his life where he is woken up to gospel sobriety. And he says, she is more righteous than I am. Now notice what he says. He says, she is more righteous than I am, not that she is righteous. What she did is wrong, okay? That's sin. But he's recognizing that I put her in this desperate situation with my sin, with my deception, with my sexual immorality and made it a lot more tempting for her to do something like this. And you know, it goes on to say that she was pregnant with twin boys and so he took her into his house and they had those sons and he raised those sons but it also says that he never slept with her again. And that's important to note because in God's law it says that's wicked. For a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law to get together like that is wicked. And so Judah is now saying, you know what? That's wrong. So I'm going to take care of her and I'm going to raise these sons, but I'm not sleeping with her ever again. 
So if we, if we believe what we do, that all Scripture points to Jesus, where in the world is Jesus in this passage? And I believe he's, he's right here standing with Tamar in front of everybody. Tamar is, is a very imperfect picture of Jesus, who, who is the greater Tamar. What do I mean by that? Well, Tamar is covered in the shame of her and Judah's sin, and she's standing before everybody covered in that sin. Uh, Jesus is perfect, but he chose to cover himself with our flesh, humble himself to be, become a man, and then to humble himself to the, the greatest depths imaginable and to cover himself with our sin and our shame, to take it to the cross on our behalf so that we could be brought back to a right relationship with God. You know, she is standing before all these people facing death and condemnation and there is new life inside of her. And Jesus, as he is facing crucifixion and crushing and death and total separation from God the Father, he is bringing new life into the world for all of God's people. So what do we do with this story? Uh, there are a couple applications, and they're to the two, two different kinds of people. There's the folks that find themselves identifying with Tamar, and in this story, God says, if you're in that place, if you are full of shame and you are full of sin and you are feeling helpless and desperate, then I want you to come to me and receive forgiveness and love and redemption. Jesus is the only righteous one. It really didn't matter what Judah had to say, ultimately. Jesus is the only righteous one. He is the only judge whose judgment matters. And listen to what he is like. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So whatever you have that you think is separating you from the love of Jesus, know that he already knows that. He's like, that's why I came. I didn't come here to pat you on the back and say, good job, I'm proud of you, you get a gold star. He came to say, everything is a train wreck, you included, and that's why I came. Because I know this, I know you. You don't have to pretend with me. I know who you are. I know where you are. I know where you've been. I know where you're going next week. And that's why I'm here, to take all of that on me because you can't survive that. I can. And I want you to cry out to me so that you can live with me in eternity. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You realize you only need mercy? Mercy only exists when you deserve judgment? And God is telling us, look, my mercies never come to an end? It's not like, hey, we're square today, and then you go sin again. It's like, man, that's one too many. That will never happen because his mercies are new. They are everlasting for his people. We can even look at this, this account in uh, John's gospel and how does, to see exactly what Jesus probably would have said to his great-great-great-grandmother when the woman who is caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. And they say, hey, what do you say we do to her? And everybody's getting ready to stone her. 
And Jesus says, hey, how about you who is without sin throw the first stone? And then everybody lets the stones drop and they all leave. And he says, is no one here left to condemn you? Well, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. That's who Jesus is. That's what you can expect when you come to him is mercy. Because that is why he came. And if you find yourself this morning in the place of Judah where you are having a hard time identifying with this story because you are really self-righteous and really blind, then I pray that God opens your eyes because that's not something you can do on your own. And I pray that he continues to open my eyes because it is so easy to get to that place. And he says the same thing to those people. The people who are living a double life, the people who are trying to hide their sin from everybody because they care more about their reputation than their own souls. He says, you guys also come to me and receive mercy and healing and forgiveness and redemption. I'm your only hope. You know, in this story, there's a a huge embarrassing moment for Judah, right? Where he is calling for this woman to be burned to death And everybody is watching as it's revealed that you're the one that got her pregnant. That was probably a crushing moment for him, right? That was not, you know, when he wrote about that in his diary that night, that was not a good day. But you know what? That's the greatest gift that God could ever give him because that's what brought him to gospel sanity. That's what brought him to repentance. That's what restored him. And so uh, Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever hides his sins will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes his sins will what? Find mercy. Always. No conditions. And so if you are in a place today where you are living a double life, then you need to find some brothers and sisters who you can trust, who know, love Jesus and love you and who are mature and are not going to use this to harm you, but they are going to hold you accountable. And you need to confess it and get it out so that you can have healing So you can have peace, so you can have freedom. And if you are in a place that is so dark and you're like, man, that sounds great, but I do not have anywhere near the courage to do that. Well, guess what? That's okay. Because the Holy Spirit is already praying and you can join him in that prayer that God will reveal this for you. And I pray that he will, because that is the best thing that could ever happen to you, to have a moment like Judah had in this story. It will crush you, no doubt, but it will crush you to bring you life. And if that moment never happens, that's the scary thing. So here we are in this Advent season where we are, you know, we're going to flip it back to our lives now. We are waiting and longing for God to fulfill his promises and to to fulfill this hope that we have that we are hanging on to. Sometimes it feels like by a thread because life is hard. I'm like, man, how is he ever going to make sense of this? How is he ever going to do something with my secret son? Like, he's got several of those in his lineage. You don't ever have to worry about that. Jesus is not the author of sin, but he is the master of it. And he can use it for redemptive purposes, just like he did in Judah's life. And just like he did to, out of this whole episode, 
bring the Savior of the world into being. So whatever you and I have going on in our lives, nothing is outside of his power or his mercy. And we're going to celebrate that in a powerful, tangible way today as we take communion. And so uh, what's going to happen is we're going to pass these elements of bread and juice. And the reason we do this is because Jesus commanded us to do this. He said, I want my people everywhere for all time until I return to celebrate this supper, which is actually a foretaste of the wedding feast that we're going to experience when Jesus returns and weds himself to his people for all eternity. And he said, when he broke the bread, this is my body that's broken for you. You need to feed on me and get nourishment for your souls from me. And this is my blood that's poured out for you for the new covenant. And you need to drink this and you need to be united with me so that my blood covers your sin. And this table, he says, is open and available to all peoples of all nations, of all skin colors, of all backgrounds for all time. He says, this table is for every single person who knows that they are in desperate need of a savior and knows that Jesus is the only savior. But if you find yourself in a place today where you cannot confess that you need a savior and you cannot confess that Jesus is that savior, then he says, do not take this meal. This is not for you. But if you're in a place where you're realizing this for the very first time, you don't have to do anything else. You just come and take this meal. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be, you just have to know that you are a sinner who desperately needs Jesus and this meal is for you. And so I'm gonna pray for us and, uh, and we're gonna have a time of worship and you'll have the elements passed to you and uh, I'm just gonna pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us in the face of our absolute mess. Lord, we, we are all in such desperate need of you, whether we know it or not, whether we care to admit it or not. So Lord, again, I pray that you would just fill us with deep encouragement that in coming to you, there is only mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts to get us to that place of needing to come to you and crying out to you. Lord, use any means necessary to do that for me and for my brothers and sisters in this room today. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming and taking all of this on yourself so that we could be free. And thank you in advance for returning uh, to take us home. Give us strength now in the waiting. In Jesus' name, amen.